high-impact church. An oxymoron, you might think. Two uh, ideas next to each other that do not make any sense. The church having an impact is quite remarkable in itself. The church having a, a high impact seems to be almost beyond our experience. We find ourselves in a context where the church has almost no impact whatsoever. Once the centre of national life, once the pillar of the community, now left to the margins, a relic of a bygone age, dusted off the churches from time to time, maybe at Christmas for something a bit nostalgic. But in terms of its penetration, involvement in ordinary, everyday life, well, that's over. It belongs to the past. So the idea of the church having some kind of impact, let alone a a high impact, is outside lots of our experience. If the church disappeared, would anybody notice? If the church disappeared, would anybody really care? And who would care and why? If Burlington closed, I trust we would care, but would anyone else? And would they notice that we weren't around either? Would Ipswich notice? Would anything really be lost? How different the context we find ourselves in to what was happening in the early chapters, in fact, throughout the whole of the book of Acts. Where in a few short months, the church had caused such a stir that everybody knew about it. Love them or hate them, no one could ignore them. Thousands were coming to Christ. By chapter 4, the highest council in the land had called an emergency meeting to discuss the stir that this church, this new church, was causing. And by chapter 5, it was said that the whole of Jerusalem was filled with their teaching. Can you imagine that today? Can you imagine Ipswich Council calling an emergency meeting to discuss the impact that Burlington is having on the surrounding area? Can you imagine Portman Road getting their knickers in a twist because our crowd is getting in the way of their crowd? Can you imagine a scenario where there is a sense that everyone is talking about what is happening in this place? Occasionally you get a sense, don't you, that everybody is talking about something. Maybe England is in the World Cup. Now there's a blast from the past. Now it's the quarter-final or even the semi-final and everybody on earth knows what's going to happen. We're going to get beaten on penalties by Germany. That's just the way it goes. But nevertheless, there is mass hysteria in our country because of the impending football game. People put flags on windows and cars. Grown men paint their faces in the national colours. And on the day of the match, everyone is talking about it. You're discussing about where you're going to watch it and who you're going to watch it with and what the final score is that you hope it will be and so on. There is a sense in which talk of the game has filled the town. There are moments like that, aren't there? Imagine... If talk about what was happening with those Christians was filling the town. 
Everyone was talking about it. Everybody knowing somebody who knew somebody who'd been saved, rescued, healed, delivered, released, transformed, whatever it might be. Imagine if what God was doing here was being talked about all around. On the Cows by Candle night uh, service, it's probably the only time it, it really happens. I love the chaos outside. If you had trouble parking uh, uh, for that service, I'm sorry. I take great delight in it. There's something holy about the chaos of not everyone being able to get to worship in an orderly fashion. But you imagine that on a Sunday, chaos around, because so many people are coming together to worship. It's a tiny glimpse of what the church should be like. I say should be, Because I do not believe that the Holy Spirit put the story of Acts in the Bible, a description of church as this vibrant, stir-causing, life-changing, power-displaying, hope-giving community in order for the church today to be benign, irrelevant and barely noticed. If the church is supposed to be as dull as dishwater, then why aren't there more stories like that in the Bible? If the church is supposed to be totally irrelevant, with no one hardly noticing it was there, why aren't there stories like that for us to read and take comfort from in the New Testament? So when we come to the book of Acts, I think we have a choice. The choice is we can dumb down the stories in the Bible in order for them to fit more comfortably with our own experience. Or... We can allow what it says there to inform our expectation, our expectation of what God can do in an ordinary place with ordinary people, more what God longs to do in ordinary places with ordinary people. And with renewed expectation, we can begin to see our own experience change. That's the choice. Either we kind of put Acts in a package that helps us feel more comfortable with our own experience, or we say, wow, there is so much more God has for us. So with that in mind, let's open or keep open that first chapter that we're going to look at together this morning. And let's discover the people that made up this high-impact church. Well, firstly, they were people of Jesus. Verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so let's be clear, make sure we're all on the same page, so to speak. In the Bible, there are four Gospels. Four books that tell the story about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John went to bed with their trousers on. Helps you remember it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, four stories about Jesus, the incredible things that he did, how he came, he lived, he died, and rose again. All four stories say the same thing in that regard. One of the writers, Luke, who wrote the Gospel according to... Ah, see? He then went on to write some more, volume two. He then went on to write about what happened after Jesus had lived and died and rose again. And that's what we have here in this book of Acts. It's what continued. So it's his second book, 
And he's at pains to show that the story of the church, the story that he's writing about here, is not a new story, but a continuing story that began with Jesus, whose birth we celebrated just a week or so ago. It is the continuation of all that Jesus began to do and teach. The church is not a new story, but a continuing story of Jesus himself. It's not our story, therefore, but his story. Not our church, but his church. And it's not the story of any Jesus. Look at verse 3. It's the story of Jesus who died and rose again. You see, many people will believe in Jesus, so they will say. But what the Bible says over and over again is it's about people who believe in the Jesus who died and was raised to life again. It's so important for us to always have in very sharp focus that any high-impact church is a church where the Jesus who died and is now alive is at the centre of it all. And as you read day by day through the book of Acts, you'll see that the resurrection was a real focus point for those early Christians. It's what they preached every time. It's what marked them out as different. It's what they would ultimately die for, a Jesus who was alive again. And that's the challenge for a high-impact church, because it's easy to preach about a Jesus that loves, and it's easy to preach about a Jesus that forgives, but to preach about a Jesus who is dead and now alive, will get you into all kinds of trouble. The most aggressive confrontation I've ever had as a minister was here before anybody had arrived and someone came in incredibly angry with something that I'd written. And it was about Jesus being alive. It was back then the key issue, and you'll see as you read through, it's the key issue still. It's not our story, but it's his story the one who is alive, and he invites us to share in it. And even here, we get an urge, or at least I do, I get an urge to raise my expectation. If it's nothing less than the continuation of all Jesus began to do and teach, then there's something quite remarkable coming, isn't there? You see, Luke had written carefully and extensively about the wonderful things Jesus did. The inspiration of his words, the penetration of his love, the power of his healings, the love, the hope, the life, the forgiveness, the healing, the restoring. And now Luke gets to the end of his first book and goes, that was amazing, but it's just the beginning, you know. That was just the beginning of all Jesus began to do and teach. Which leads me to what I think is the inescapable conclusion that this isn't it. Hello? Hello? Are we okay? We're tracking? We're here? If what happened back then was just the beginning, then surely this is not all there is. Now through his, not through his physical body, which was ascended to glory, But through his newly formed body, the church, he wants to continue everything that he began. And so as we begin this new year, I want to ask you, do you believe in the risen Jesus? Do you believe in the Jesus once dead, now alive? 
who is alive today as ever he has been? And do you believe that there is more that he wants to do? You see, when I read the Gospels, and when I read all that Jesus continued to do in Acts, I find it hard to believe that we've been there, seen it all and done it. No, no response at all. You're not sure about that? You see, if we focus on being people of the risen Jesus, then it's my belief that we'll get drawn in to everything the risen Jesus wants to do. And sometimes we act like the risen Jesus doesn't do much stuff anymore. Ever thought like that? We'll say, we'll come back to it in a little while. But somehow he was busy back then, but he's not busy now. That's rubbish. Millions are turning to Christ in China because of the risen Jesus. True or not true? In Africa, an estimated 16,000 people come to Christ every single day. In Korea, the church has gone from 50,000 at the beginning of the last century to over 12 million. Not to mention what's happening in South America and parts of Asia. You see, Jesus, the risen Jesus, is doing loads of fab stuff. He's continuing on his work. And I think the question for me and my life, and I share it with you for our lives and our community, is will we be people of Jesus? And so get uh, inevitably sucked in, drawn in, to all that he is still doing. The people of a high-impact church are people of Jesus. But they're also, verse 8, people of purpose. Do you notice that in verse 8? You will receive power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There is a job to do. And here in verse 8, it's like a, a summary verse of the whole of the book of Acts because Acts tells the story of the power coming Tells the story of them being witnesses in Jerusalem and then out to Judea and then Samaria and then on to the ends of the earth with the gospel arriving in Rome towards the end of the book. But it's also the story of all that's happening writ large in our world. The gospel going out and out and out and out to the ends of the earth because there's a job to do. A witness that will spread, ultimately unstoppable, to the ends of the earth. Hallelujah. And all of this makes for me what happened next even more poignant. You read it there in verse 9. After he said this, so he's just explained what's going to happen, and then he goes, by the way, I'm off. He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently, verse 10, up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I love that phrase. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? Words that have echoed down the ages of the church. There's something to do. There's a purpose to live for. There's a job to get on with. Why do you stand there gazing around when there's so much to do? That's the influence of these uh, men dressed in white, these angels. Don't just stand there for heaven's sake, for the sake of a lost world, for the sake of people in darkness. Don't just stand there. Get down from the mountain and get on with the job. Get waiting for the promise. There is much to do. 
And if those angels turned up in your house this lunchtime, what might they say to you? You see, in what ways in your life are you just standing around? Just gazing up into the sky? Do you know that when you do stand around and gaze up into the sky, people join you? Don't they? Go out into the street tonight and just stand there. Someone will come walking their dog, there'll be two of you and a dog looking up in the sky. Then there'll be someone else, and before you, there'll be a crowd looking up in the sky, then you can just slip away. And everyone just stands. What a tragedy when the church has gathered people to just stand around, don't you think? To be those that just gaze into the sky. Jesus, hmm, remember him, one day he'll come back. And these angels suddenly appear and say, don't for heaven's sake just stand around. For the sake of the world, don't stand around. Get down and get on. Get waiting for the promise that's coming. I don't know about you, uh, but I, I think I do a lot of standing around gazing into the sky. And, and we do it looking ever so busy. Aren't we so clever at that? Diaries are full. Everything's going on. And we're just really gazing into the sky. Get down and get on. People of a high-impact church, you see, were people of Jesus and they were people of purpose. But as we've uh, begun to allude to already, they were people of great expectation. People of great expectation because their hope was in Jesus who was dead and is now alive, verse 3, who has, verse 9, ascended into heaven and is therefore Lord of all. And therefore it was his plan and his great idea. It was his purpose. And so confident were they in the risen Jesus that they began to expect to see him at work. Notice the strength of their expectation. What do they do after they get down from the mountain. Do they go back to their homes? No. They go back to their old routines? No. It's been a heck of a three years. Shall we take a holiday? No. Then they returned to Jerusalem and they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter and all the rest and they all joined together constantly in prayer. Expectant. This is going to happen because the risen Jesus has said, it will happen. And so with great expectation, day after day after day, they stayed together, constantly in prayer. Expecting Jesus to do something, expecting the promise to be fulfilled. And of course, Jesus did. And Jesus did more than they might ever have imagined. And so God's work among them began to snowball way beyond their expectation. You see, what began as 120 in chapter 1, became 3,000 in chapter 2. And by the end of chapter 2, it said the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. By chapter 4, there were 5,000. That's just the men plus the women and the children. What's that, 20,000 by chapter 5? Sorry, by chapter 4. By chapter 5, it talks of multitudes being saved. And then by chapter 6, the language alters. Instead of the Lord adding, it was the language of multiplication. So many people were coming to Christ. In chapter 8, Samaritans came to Christ, as did an Ethiopian that took the gospel to Africa. Entire towns committed themselves to Christ in chapter 9. And a great number of Gentiles in chapter 11. Large number of Jews and Greeks in chapter 14. Chapter 16 has churches increasing daily. In chapter 19, the word of the Lord is spreading widely and with power. Wow. A church causing a stir. A church making 
an incredible difference. To be a high-impact church, we need our expectation to grow. I need my expectation as to what God can do in this place to grow. You need to help me with that, and I need to help you with yours. You see, the problem is, I think, and this is it for me, and it might resonate with you. The problem is, it's not that we don't believe that God can do it. We're kind of quite happy that God can do it, aren't we? Maybe some of us are not sure about that, to be fair. We're not not sure whether all this stuff is really true, so just hang with us over these weeks. We're not really sure God could do it. But I think most of us here, we think God could do that. The problem is whether we believe that God will do it here with us at this time. Isn't that the problem? You see, when I'm praying for someone who's sick, I've got no problem to believe that God's going to heal. But whether God will heal through this prayer at this time is a different ballgame altogether, isn't it? And I think the issue is this for us. It's not that we don't believe God does this kind of stuff or that he will maybe in some place in some time do this kind of stuff. My encouragement to you is can we raise our game to begin to believe that this God who has done and is doing will do here with us in the same way. You see, what we tend to do is emphasize the difference between us and those in the book of Acts rather than celebrate the similarities that there are between us and these new disciples. We emphasize the differences as if to say somehow it was different for them. Somehow it was easier for them than it is for us. And we say things that can't be true, like somehow God was more powerful with them back then than he can be with us now. Or the people were more receptive than they are. It wasn't such a difficult culture back then. Well, actually, it was. And the more I've studied Acts again in preparation for our series, the more I've been amazed, not by the differences between them and us, but by the similarities. You see, we talk about how hard it is in our day for the gospel to grow and to penetrate. We talk about the fact that we live in a multicultural society and we talk about people being into everything that they want to be into and and the name of the game is just to let everybody be. That's exactly what was happening in this situation where the church first exploded into life. In that context, Christianity was not a major religion, it was a tiny little sect amongst many other religions. As well as the dominance of Judaism, there were followers of the Greek gods like Zeus and Hermes. There were spiritualist figures like sorcerers and fortune tellers and Jewish exorcists. The languages referred to in Acts chapter 2 represents a huge cultural diversity. Within Judaism itself, there were Pharisees who believed in the resurrection and there were Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. And then there were the philosophical schools, the Stoics who pursued knowledge uh, as a way of gaining a virtuous life, the Epicureans who sought after happiness in some kind of serene detachment. And all of that was there alongside the oh-so-familiar-to-our-day value of tolerance. The Roman Empire said, carry on all your different religions if you like, as long as you tolerate them all. Isn't that exactly the situation we're in? 
where you can be a Christian if you like, as long as you don't expect anybody else to be. You can do your thing if it's good for you, but don't impose that on anybody else. And in that day, the strongest value was tolerance, just like it is in our day, which is why someone went so berserk when I said Jesus is the only religious leader who is now alive. Because that showed intolerance, in quotes, to other religions. So it's interesting, isn't it? They clung to the resurrection, the truth about Jesus, in this age that demanded tolerance. It's just like our day. It's just the same. The similarities are enormous. And yet the church exploded into life in what was a pluralistic age that looked like postmodernism in many ways. And that's the context in which the story begins. There's no better time then for us to raise our expectation as to what God might do with us. And so they went out, knowing God could do it, and in spite of the opposition, in spite of the struggle, in spite of the fact that it got harder and harder, the gospel grew and grew. And in fact, the book ends incredibly positively. Despite all that has gone on, this young church had been hammered by forces on every side. Yet Luke ends like this. Boldly and without hindrance, he, that's Paul, preached about the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus. In the Greek, it's fantastic because the last word of the whole of this book is certainty. And what Luke is saying, in this world, because Jesus is alive, there is a certainty that the gospel will be preached and go to the ends of the earth. Hallelujah. The question is not whether that will happen. The question is whether God will use me in that process. I need to raise my expectation as to what God can do, will do, in the here and now. And lastly, they were people of value. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women. What a strange thing to say in that context. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Think about those different groups of people for a moment. Whatever God was going to do, God was going to do it with them together. We must foster that togetherness. We need each other. If we're to be a high-impact church, we need each other. We're less of a church without you. We're more of a church with you. They mention the women, so often excluded in lists, as if to say they didn't matter. Luke says, no, this is the gospel for everybody. We're all in. We all need to be part of this. And then the mention of Jesus' brothers. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Because the last time Jesus' brothers were mentioned, they were being really difficult. Jesus' earthly brothers couldn't hack it that Jesus was the Messiah. And you can understand that, can't you? Think about what you think about your brother. You know, however good your brother is, he's rubbish. And it didn't matter, oh, you can be the Messiah or what? He's just Jesus, he's a fruity. And they made life difficult for Jesus. They mocked him. They made fun of him. And yet Luke goes to the trouble to say, hey, do you know what? Even the brothers were there. And do you know what that does? That says to me there's hope for everybody. This is a church for everybody. You might not always have been in, but you can be in. 
You might have been on the edge, but you don't need to stay there. You might have been in in a difficult relationship with this community, but that doesn't need to remain the same. The brothers were there. What? Those ones that made fun of him in public. The ones that mocked him. The ones that gave Mary, their mother, a difficult time. Yeah, those brothers were there. And I want to say to you, you might not have always journeyed with this community, but you can be in too. Be a person of Jesus who died and rose again. Can you imagine how easy it must have been for them to have argued? The disciples loved arguing, didn't they? Which one's the greatest? Where are we going to sit? No, 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 no. The brothers could have said, well, we were his family actually, so we should get a better place. They could have given Peter a hard time because he messed up in front of a slave girl. They could have given John a hard time, or John could have gloated because he was the only one at the cross. There was plenty to argue about, plenty to fight over. They said, no, there's a job to be done. This Jesus, he's coming with power, and we've got to be ready, and we're there. And with one accord, they waited, they longed, they hoped, and they prayed, and they would not be disappointed. It was just left, if you read the final verses of the chapter, for them to uh, appoint someone to replace Judas, of course, who'd betrayed Jesus and uh, hanged himself. Jesus needed replacing because everyone counts. And I want to ask you, as we start 2009, are you there with us, so to speak? Are you there in that upper room together as people of Jesus, people of purpose, people asking for a greater expectation, longing, longing to be part of all the risen Jesus will do? in 2009, as he continues to do all that he began to do and teach way back some 2,000 years or so ago. Are you there in that place? If not, if not, what do you need to fix to sort out so that you can join us in the upper room, waiting, longing, seeking for the power to come? What do you need to do? You might need to put something right in your own life. You might need to put something right with a relationship here. You might need to put something right with a relationship somewhere else. There might be something that you're doing that you need to turn away from now. But what would it mean for you to be in that upper room, to be in that place? Let's pray. Lord, we know that there were 120 at the beginning that kind of gathered and waited and prayed and longed and hoped. Maybe there are many more that never quite made it to that upper room. For whatever reason, they never quite got there. Help me not to be like that. Help me to deal with everything that would keep me away. And help me this year to join your community, the church, to be of one accord. as we believe together in the risen Jesus and all that he longs to continue to do here, in this place, with us this year. For we are indeed God's masterpiece, created for good works that Jesus himself has prepared in advance for us to do.
May our lives cause a stir. May this church cause a stir. In Jesus' name, Amen.